Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain in your homes. We'll be coming house to house to make warrantless searches soon. So simply relax, sit down, and let it happen. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Rifleman Radio Show. The Rifleman Radio Show is dedicated to bringing you the absolute best information possible on rifle marksmanship, rifle safety, self-reliance, and the sacred obligation each and every American has to safeguard the freedoms and liberties that we enjoy by virtue of living 
in this nation. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Tonight we're going to be talking about the Battle of Oriskany, and uh, then we're going to talk about the Battle of Waxhaws. Now, I know that we've covered the uh, Battle of Oriskany before, but uh, it is a very important battle in our nation's history, and uh, it's well worth covering again. And then the Battle of Waxhaws, which I don't think that we've talked about before, but uh, it... uh... Well, folks, looks like Scott Dunn got cut off early tonight. We'll keep rolling until he gets on there. As he said, we're going to talk about the Battle of Oriskany, which is a favorite of his. We're also going to talk about the Battle of Waxhaws, entertain the folks down south and Speak a bit about their misery during the Revolution. Talk about a fellow named Tarleton and something called Tarleton's Quarter, which isn't no quarter at all. That's something that you need to think about very strongly to behold. Tarleton's Quarter backfired on him. When people knew they would receive no quarter for early and easy surrender, they fought to the death. That's how it works. Uh, I'd like to see some of you folks dial in and talk with us tonight. Tell us what's going on in your local area, what's happening in your community. Pass on any thanks for your fellow instructors that are working with you. Tell us about the way your students are working, how well they do. Let us all know we need that positive reinforcement now and then. It never hurts any of us one bit to pick it up. We'll take every bit of it that we can get. So dial on in and talk with us. We want to have you in. Up oh, here's Scott back on the line. I'll get off and let him talk. Well, you know, get off, uh, Sam. Uh, thanks for letting the folks know that we would like you to call in during the show tonight for uh, uh, for a couple of things. We'd like for you to call in and uh, give your local crews thanks. Local crews that are running apple seeds every weekend across the nation every weekend across this nation at a location within a reasonable driving distance view is an Appleseed Rifle Marksmanship two-day shooting clinic. And uh, these events are run by volunteers. The guys that, uh, well, guys and men and women, because we have uh, plenty of female instructors that uh, are instructing and uh, running events, you guys and uh, gals are giving up their weekends in order to teach the absolute best rifle marksmanship uh, fundamentals course in the nation. The absolute best. We've worked for seven long years on uh, on trying to perfect our craft, the ability to teach rifle marksmanship and uh, and teach it to all levels of shooters in uh, in a fashion that's easy to understand. And uh, and allows us to give you 20 years of uh, of information. Uh, when I say 20 years, what I mean is uh, you can go 20 years of shooting with your uncle and your dad and uh, and your friends and stuff like that, and you would probably pick most of this up during that time. But we've boiled all of the uh, all of the information down, and this isn't. The course that we're teaching is not a course <clears throat> that uh, that we hammer together. We said, hey, let's try it on these guys uh, and, and see if it works. 
this, the uh, skills and techniques that we're teaching you, are the skills and techniques uh, that have been developed from 400 years of firearms use. This isn't uh, something brand new. This is these are tried and true techniques. But what we've done, we've boiled it down to its essence, and then we're teaching it to you. We're going to teach you about sling use, about positions. We're going to teach you about the six steps to firing the shot, about the rifleman's bubble, rifleman's dance. We're going to teach you about natural point of aim. Uh, we're going to explain inches, minutes, and clicks, and how they apply to your rifle and uh, to your optics or to your sights. Uh, and then, in addition to this, uh, in addition to the absolute best fundamentals of rifle marksmanship course on the planet, we're going to talk to you about America's history, about the heritage that you have inherited from those who have come before. The founders had a vision for this nation, and and we're going to talk to you about the vision that they had for the nation. And the way that we do that, we start by telling you about the events of April 19, 1775. That's the day our nation was born. We're going to talk to you about the battles at Lexington Green, uh, at the North Bridge in Concord, and along Battle Road, 20 miles back to Boston. And during this discussion, you're going to learn where the American Revolutionary War started. A lot of folks say that, well, it started at uh, Lexington Green. And other folks say, no, no, it, it started at the North Bridge in Concord. But if you come to an event, we'll tell you where it actually did start. <clears throat> we do that by use, uh, telling you a series of stories called the Three Strikes of the Match. And uh, and you're going to learn a lot at an Appleseed two-day rifle marksmanship clinic. You're going to learn a lot. You're going to learn a lot about shooting. You're going to learn a lot about American history and heritage. And you're going to learn a lot about yourself. Uh, folks will normally go to the range uh, for eight hours at a time, uh, two days in a row. And they certainly don't do it if it's going to be uh, abnormally windy or if it's a chance of rain or snow or if it's ice cold or if it's 111 degrees. They normally don't go to the ranch because that would be ridiculous, right? It would be ridiculous to go to the range and shoot in the wind when it's windy or whenever it's wet. I mean, that would be, why in the world would you do that? Well, i tell you why you do it, because you're going to do it in order to learn how your equipment functions in adverse weather conditions. You're going to learn how you function during inclement weather. And... Uh, it used to surprise me to see the folks on an apple seed line lined up laying half in and half out of a ditch filled with water. Uh, I remember many years ago we were at the Steve Strews place and uh, College Station was running the, the first apple seed there. And he just finished the range and he had made a, a miscalculation on the distance and he had put the 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 firing line to he put the berm too close to the firing line. So in order for us to get uh, 22 meters, which is the most we could get, we had to be back all the way up against the road. Now and then right up against the road 
was a ditch. So the folks were laying with their lower bodies in the ditch, and uh, their upper bodies, you know, were up on the rise, and they were able to to set their mats and stuff up like that and make their shots. But then it started to rain, and then it started to rain heavier and heavier, and pretty soon the folks laying in the ditch were, uh, they were underwater from the waist down. But they didn't jump up and pack up their gear and stomp off. They shot. They stayed. They laid there in the mud, in the rain, and they shot. And I got to tell you, every time I see this, uh, I used to be a bit shocked about it, that that folks would actually do this. They're actually laying in the rain. I can't believe it. <clears throat> but even though I'm still surprised, uh, I'm no longer shocked because I've seen it over and over. I've seen folks lay in the uh, in the burning sun at uh, 113, 114 degrees uh, with a wet bulb of uh, like 118, 119. I've seen them lay there in the sun determined to shoot. Uh, Larry Coonrad, determined, determined not to get off the line until he fired his rifle and scored. And he did. He fired his rifle and scored on the hottest day that we've ever had here, laying in the sun. And uh, and uh, once he fired it, he uh, made him take a break and uh, found him a shady place to sit. But <clears throat> we run the events regardless of the weather. Uh, and we do that so that you can understand how your equipment and how you yourself function in inclement weather. Uh, there have been plenty of times that uh, that I thought folks were going to give up, especially when in the cold rain. You know, if it's, uh, it's just a regular warm summer rain or something, that's no big deal. But if it's a cold fall rain or a cold spring rain or even a cold winter rain, I'm always amazed at the folks toughing it out. But they do. <clears throat> they do. That's the kind of folks that come to Apple Seeds. They tough it out, and they learn what their equipment does. But even more important than that, they learn what they do. They learn what they have inside of them, and uh, and people will shoot to rifle standards in the cold rain, in the ice, in the heat. Uh, we had a an apple seed here in Davila during a hurricane. We had another one during a tornado. Now, of course, we weren't inside the tornado when it happened, but it was close by. Uh, We got plenty of the wind and debris and stuff from it. The only thing we don't shoot in is lightning uh, for obvious reasons, okay? And we don't, uh, if there's lightning, we'll call a shoot because we don't want people, uh, a line of folks standing there with a line of, lightning rods in their hands. Otherwise, we're down on the line shooting in the wind, in the rain, in the snow, in the sleet, in the hot and the cold. And it's the it's the only way you're going to learn what your equipment does and how you do in the weather. All right? And that's what we do. And that's what folks do at Apple Seeds. And you're going to meet some of the best folks in the nation when you attend an event. 
And I can't tell you how proud I am of the folks uh, of the folks who just come to any event, first off, but especially of the folks that uh, are standing there in the rain and uh, they're prepping their mags and it's pouring down. And, uh, you know, we'll, usually I'll ask the folks, I'll go, look, uh, you guys going to be able to handle this? You're going to be able to uh, to function in this? And uh, if you want, well, we can call it. But I'd like for you to try and shoot. And uh, very, very seldom have I ever had anybody walk off the line or ask me to call the shoot. I'm always, I'm always amazed. I'm always proud of the folks who attend. But they wouldn't be there. They wouldn't be there attending without the volunteer instructors that we have. So I'd like for you guys uh, to call in 347-308-8790. 347-308-8790. And give your local crew uh, a thank you on the air. And uh, uh, Sam, if you'll put that into the chat, the, the call-in number. Give your local crew a thank you on the air. And I'd like you guys to call in. Don't just think about it. I want you to go ahead and call in right now and thank your local crews. Uh, I know you guys, uh, I can already see that there's uh, quite a few of you that uh, are listening. So I want to, I want you guys to call in right now, 347-308-8790, and thank your local folks for the work that they do. Uh, I'm going to thank first, uh, I want to thank... Uh, uh, Sam D, who is my co-host, and uh, when we're doing a show, when we're doing a radio show here, it's never just me. It's uh, Sam D, who's my co-host, and myself doing the show. If I'm here, Sam's here, and uh, even if he is uh, doing his job remotely off his phone uh, uh, out in the middle of the desert, which he's done before. Uh, He's here with me every time we're doing the show, and that's the way it's been uh, for for the for years. Okay, so my thanks to you, Sam, for always being there, and and always ready to to jump in and uh, and fix problems, uh, just like you did a while ago. Whenever the the phone lines here went dead, if we have a power glitch, I'm, I'm I live early, if and. And having electricity uh, go off is is fairly common, but if it does, then that dumps me. And uh, I've noticed that that I have been dumped quite a few times for what reason I don't know by Blog Talk Radio. And I don't know if that's just uh, if it's because we're doing a a conservative labeled show. Uh, I don't know. I know that we have a lot of trouble with that. We have a lot of trouble with the folks. Uh, trying to log into chat. Let me also let you guys know that with the chat and the folks who are listening to the show uh, on your computers and stuff, the uh, the Blog Talk system is not compatible with Windows. So if you're going to listen to the show or, or get on the chat and stuff like that, uh, first open up your Firefox uh, browser and use Firefox as a platform to run the show on, Okay. Uh, Windows is very incompatible with the Blog Talk uh, system. Firefox is a lot better. It may still have troubles, 
but Firefox is a lot better platform to run the uh, the blog talk system on. Uh, so I want you guys to call in three four seven three zero eight eight seven nine zero and thank your local crews. My thanks are there went to Sam. I also want to thank uh, Larry Coonrad because Larry, if when I open the doors at the Davila location, he's already either on the other side or uh, or he's standing right there with me. Uh, whenever I open up the storage container and drag out the flags and and the target backers, etc., he's standing there with me. Uh, he's he usually arrives early on Friday night with uh, one of his grandchildren in tow, and uh, and he's always there, always ready to help out. And uh, my thanks go to him. My thanks goes also to. Uh, uh, this is for my local crew, uh, to uh, Chuck Leeming, who is uh, one of our instructors here in Texas. And Chuck, uh, during his first uh, year, I believe he did, uh, and and I say year because I'm going to call it by the calendar year, but it was actually only six months. And I think in those six months he did over 20 events uh, during the first six months of his uh, service. And uh, he's a very talented instructor. He's a very hard-working instructor. And he covers events all the way from here to Minnesota. And uh, and I really appreciate Chuck's work. He's, uh, he's done a fine job over the last few years. And, uh, and he's an extremely professional extremely talented uh, instructor. And uh, uh, I just, I, I really appreciate his work. Uh, Tommy Newton, who's a dragon on the forum. Tommy is a great instructor here in Texas, and he's been running the Fredericksburg, Texas events for the last couple of years. And, uh, and he does a great job. He's also been running the Lady Seed events that we've been holding in the area there. And I'm telling you right now, the ladies love Tommy. And I know that uh, there's been some uh, discussion of having only female instructors teaching at the Lady Seeds. But we had uh, we had Lady Seeds before we ever had female instructors. And as far as I know, we have never had a complaint from the male instructors who've taught at the lady seats and Tommy has been uh, he's been doing a great job at it and he has uh, he's done quite a few of the lady seats and they love it uh, I also want to thank Sleepy Joe and Steve Raby these guys have been running the uh, Cawthorn Cartridge Club which is College Station uh, location. They've been running it for the last couple of years, and they've been doing a fantastic job there. And I really appreciate those two guys. Uh, they're both very professional instructors. They both do a fantastic job, and uh, every time the college station events are running, they are there running them. And that's one of the things that uh, we worked pretty hard at, uh, at least here in Texas, and that's getting the instructors to uh, take responsibility for local events, and that is the folks that, that live fairly close to the ranges, getting them 
to take responsibility and take ownership of those local ranges and run those events. That doesn't mean that they just do only events at that at those locations. They can go anywhere and do events anywhere in the nation. But they take responsibility for ensuring that the events at their local ranges they've taken responsibility for. They take they make sure that those events are covered and that uh, they're staffed and that the range owners are taken care of and that everything is running smoothly. <clears throat> so I want to uh I would like to thank them. Uh and I see my Mark, I, I know it says you're just listening. Uh, but I wanted you to say hi anyway because uh, every month or so you call in and you give us kind of an update on on Wyoming and how things are going there. So welcome to the show, Mark, and just give us a quick update on how things are going in Wyoming. Oh, I'm I'm down in Colorado again now, but things are going good here. Yeah, I guess. It cool down a little you bit. You guess? Huh? You said you guess it's going okay. Yeah, I guess it's going okay. Yeah, it's going all right. And you said it's cooled down? I figured it was starting to finally warm would, up if there. It would, would cool down. I'm down here in La Habana, oh, really? and it's, she's pretty warm right here during the day. What are the temperatures now? Oh, we had a few days so far in 95 already, and it ain't even July yet, you know. Man. Yeah. That sounds pretty tough. Yeah. Is it normally uh is it normally that warm this soon? Well, I don't I don't I don't know. I think you know, it it's hot for a couple of days and it cools down again to about eighty or so. But, uh yeah, I think it's a little early for them ninety fives myself. <laughs> it's it's way too early for ninety fives, I believe. But my la- my landlord said last year they had sixty days in a row over a hundred, so I guess this might be a hot spot to be in, huh? Right. Well, how are things going there as far as apple seed? Have you been able to uh, make it to an event lately? Well, I I joined a rifle club out here, rifle range out here, and there a little gun shop here in town, and he had some brochures on apple seed, and they're supposed to have one here. I think he said in September coming up. Okay, and that's here in Colorado? Yes, sir. Yep. In Lahana, yep. Okay. And what about in Wyoming? Um the gun the gun range I, I belong to up there in Casper, um they have, they have brochures around but I I could never find anybody that knew about if they've come into town or not. I just the the few of the people I talked to that they didn't know much about it, but they had the brochures up there. Well, I know that it. Uh, I know that it's been slim pickings in Wyoming, but uh, but I'll talk to the folks there and see if we can't uh, if we can't get things stirred up there and get uh, yeah, a few well, more events so, added in Wyoming. Somebody had been through and and handed out brochures on it, or they got them in the mail or something. But that 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 uh, Steckenoff's range there in Casper is a hell of a range. Check it. You could shoot if they'd give you the range. You could probably shoot eighty people there at one time. I mean, that's, that's a big, big the range. range. Yep. Have you uh, talked to the range here about uh, about having an apple seed? Have you talked to the range here in Casper? Are they well, willing they, to do it? Well, they would. I think they they had brochures on it, uh, but everybody I talked to didn't 
know anything about if they had one scheduled or not. But uh, those little brochures you may put out, this little folder, they have them in the office. Okay, so, and that's the range in Casper? Yep, Steckenoff's in Casper, Wyoming, yep. What's the name of the range? Steckenoff's, I believe. Okay. Okay, Steckenoff's range in Wyoming. I'll give them yeah, a call and Casper, see... Wyoming. Casper, okay. Like I said, they, they had those... So, somebody stopped by and handed out a box of them or... They'd ordered them off the off your website or something, you know. But anybody okay. I talked to didn't, didn't know nothing about it. All right. Well, I'll give them a call then. Or if you, if anybody's listening tonight, if you guys, uh, if any of you guys are close to the the Wyoming area, and uh, you might possibly be able to get this set up, then uh, then PM me on the forum, uh, Scout. Or uh, you can email me, uh, which would probably be even better. Email me at uh, range scouts, uh, all one word, lowercase r a n g e s c o u t at hughes dot net, and uh, and let me know if you can uh, can help get the, an event started at the Casper Wyoming Range. Well, anything else you got to uh, put out, Mark? How's everything? How's well, life treating you otherwise? Good. Good. Working steady. Yeah. Life is good, I guess. All right. Well, listen, yeah. thanks for calling in. I'm not going to hang up on you. I'll just put you back in uh, uh, yeah. uh, in the queue. And uh, hey, thanks, thanks for, for calling in, Mark. Yeah, All right. Take care. God bless Appreciate you, brother. Bye. <laughs> All right. Well, the, the range sounds like a great range in Wyoming. And, uh, man, I would love to go there. Maybe I can maybe I can somehow finagle this myself. But uh, any of the rest of you guys, if you can get uh, if you can get give a hand with this or anything, let me know. Be sure and uh, give shoot me an email or a PM in the forum and see if we can't uh, work together to get this uh, set up. Uh, I also wanted to let you guys know. Uh, hold on just a minute. Let me. Uh, let me pull up some. Let me pull up the the data on this. We're going to have uh, uh, Paul from Poker Face. Poker Face is a band that uh, that plays the intro music that we have on there uh, for the show, and uh, they're a great uh, freedom and liberty band. And he's going to. We're going to have. Uh, uh, I'm going to have. Sam, give him a call in, uh, at the end of the show so he can come on and talk to us. But uh, they're having a Freedom Palooza July 4th through the 6th uh, of this year in uh, Pennsylvania. And uh, this is in uh, Bucks County. And the town is Kentnersville, Pennsylvania. And it is right, uh, right there on the Delaware River. Matter of fact, it's only a few miles uh, from where Washington actually made his famous crossing of the Delaware River in order to attack the uh, the cities of Princeton uh, and uh, the Freedom Palooza is a gathering of uh, like-minded folks 
It is have they're having a a patriot fest and uh, camp out there on the river and uh, and it sounds like it's going to be a great event. It's going to be very laid back. But uh, Paul was asking if we had any instructors, uh, any shoot bosses, or really anyone that was willing to go to the Freedom Palooza and speak to the folks that are going to attend the event about Appleseed. Uh, maybe uh, maybe run it kind of like a Liberty Seed where you tell the story and uh, and give folks uh, an earful of the events of April 19, 1775, and then uh, try and get some of the folks interested uh, in attending and helping out uh, at an Appleseed event. So this is going to be a three-day event, and there, there's going to there, everybody's going to be camping. There's going to be uh, live music. They're going to be, uh, uh, you know, having a bonfire. Everybody's going to be hanging out around the bonfire. And it's a family-oriented uh, oriented event. And they do allow they do allow folks to consume alcoholic beverages like beer. The, the site says no hard liquor. That you can drink beer, but no hard liquor. They they want. Uh, of course, they don't want anybody drinking excess. It's going to be uh, everybody's going to be bringing their families and stuff like that. But you are allowed to to drink some beer around the campfire at night with the rest of the uh, with the rest of the patriots there. Now uh, they're going to have uh, several speakers there, and like I said, they're going to have live music, and they're going to. And they they would like Appleseed uh, and Appleseed folks to come and speak there. All right, so if you can do that, uh, let me know so that uh, we can get you hooked up with the folks at the Freedom Palooza, and we can get you uh, on the schedule so that uh, so that you can get listed on the schedule for your speaking. Uh, they're going to have uh, Larry Pratt from. Uh, the uh, Gun Owners of America. Uh, they're going to have uh, Larry Sinclair, uh, Danny Panzella, uh, David Wallace, Attorney uh, Silberg, uh, quite a few speakers there. Uh, Sheriff Jeff Christopher, uh, Cindy Steele, uh, Brian Seaman, Merlin Miller, a lot of folks there that are going to be talking about uh, about freedom in America. All right, so this is the the Freedom Palooza, uh, dedicated to free speech in the Constitution, and uh, that will be July fourth through the sixth in Upper Bucks County in Pennsylvania. Okay, so if one of you guys, uh, uh, if any of you guys want to uh, consider attending this event, then be sure and let me know, all right? Uh, and then also, uh, don't, uh, you guys are welcome to call uh, throughout the show. You're welcome to call uh, and uh, and give uh, thanks to your local crews or to put out information on upcoming events, all right? So, uh, I've got uh, 50 lines I'm paying for here. There shouldn't be any reason that uh, I don't have at least uh, 25 of them 
uh, with you guys calling in. Okay? 347-308-8790. Okay, like I said, we're going to be talking about the Battle of Oriskany tonight. And uh, the Battle of Oriskany is is very important because it was part of a larger plan uh, to invade the colonies uh, from the north and uh, to invade the colonies and separate them. <clears throat> and uh, and had it been successful, uh, there's a good chance it could have ended the American Revolutionary War uh, very early. Now, we know that uh, that Washington and a lot of the other uh, patriots who were fighting said that they weren't going to give up, that uh, that they would keep retreating west back across the mountains uh, as far as they had to and not give up. But had the, had the British invasion succeeded and they had captured the... Uh, uh, the Congress, then Washington Washington could very well have been ordered to surrender, and the American Revolutionary War could have ended. But that's not what happened. And the thanks in uh, in a good part of it is to the Battle of Oriskany. Now, in June of night of uh, 1777, uh, the the British Army was then under the command of uh, General Burgoyne, launched a two-pronged attack that it was originating from Quebec. It was from the north. Uh, Burgoyne's objective, as I was saying, was to split New England away from the other colonies by gaining control of the Hudson River Valley. And the main thrust was coming south across Lake Champlain, Lake Champlain uh, under Burgoyne's command. But the, the second thrust was led by Lieutenant Colonel St. Ledger, Barry St. Ledger. And St. Ledger was supposed to come down the Mohawk River Valley and then meet Burgoyne's army uh, around Albany, and they would link back up together then. <clears throat> but St. Ledger was supposed to destroy the... Uh, Colonial forces in the uh, uh, the Mohawk River Valley. Now we know that uh, that the Battle of Oriskany uh, occurred because of the uh, the forces sent to relieve the uh, uh, the siege. Of Fort Stanwyck, and Fort Stanwyck, we know, was important because in 1777 there were not uh, there weren't roads uh, linking the colonies. The only way folks could get around back then were through the the small trails, or if they wanted to to carry goods and stuff, they had to go by river. Now Stanwyck sat on a piece of ground that commanded the uh uh the portage on the river uh from the Oswego River. 
So you could actually take a, a canoe or a uh, or a raft from the ocean and go upriver until you reach Fort Sandwich, and then from there you'd have a uh, you'd have a portage, and it could be either short or long depending on the the rainy season there. And you could portage across a one small area, and then. Uh, uh, you could reach Lake Ontario, and Stanwix commanded the portage. So the the main and only route to reach Lake Ontario from the coast was guarded by Fort Stanwix. Now, Fort Stanwix was under siege uh, by the uh, by uh, St. Ledger's forces, and uh, the the folks that were living along the, the Mohawk Valley uh, had been alerted to the coming attack, and they started uh, gathering up their forces. And Nicholas Herkmer was the head of uh, Trine County's Committee of Safety, and that's what they that's what they call the the body that was uh, that was commanding the forces in. Uh, and then back on July of seven, the seventeenth. They had issued a proclamation uh, warning of the possibility of military activity and urging the folks there along the valley to respond if needed. And uh, they got a warning from one of the friendly tribes, the Oneidas, that the British were just four days away from Fort Sandwich on July 30th. So on July 30th, Herkimer put out a call to arms to his forces. And he raised a force uh, of around 800 men from the Tryon County Militia. But the force was composed primarily of poorly trained German-American farmers uh, because because that's all there was then. You know, the military forces then were the militia. And the militia were the citizens living in the area. And these guys were just German-American farmers who had settled the area, and they were called up to defend their valley. So Herkimer got the force together, the 800 men together. And I want to tell you, too, that uh, this was also an important battle because the six tribes, the six main tribes in in the the New England area had been at peace with each other for a great long time. And starting with this battle, it began the split of the six nations. All right, so on August 4th, uh, Herkimer and his guys set out uh, on a march toward Fort Stanwix. Now, they, they camped near the Oneida village of Arisco on August 5th. And and while a lot of the militia dropped out of the march due to their lack of conditioning, Herkimer's forces were augmented by uh, about 60 to 100 Oneidas. Um, and they were led by Han Yeri, who was a, really a strong supporter of the Patriot cause. And we'll talk a little bit later about about how the 
the the tribes made bad decisions and uh and it affected their future and uh and nobody uh none of the tribes got a good deal out of this <clears throat> all right now when I say that uh, a lot of the militia dropped out of the column due to a lack of conditioning, I don't know if you guys, if very many of you guys have been uh, to the central New York area in July, but it is rough. Uh, now, it's not that, it's usually not that long of a of a hot period. Most of the folks in New York that I've met uh, and visited don't even have air conditioners. Uh, because it, they usually don't use them, but they also usually get uh, <laughs> usually get a few weeks, uh, at least over the last uh, seven or eight years when I visited there, a few weeks of just horrible, uh, hot, steamy weather. And from the accounts uh, of this battle, that's what was going on then. And uh, so these guys were marching and. Uh, very hot, humid conditioning. A lot of the force uh, that Herkimer started out with started dropping out because of poor conditioning and they couldn't make the march. But these guys, like I said, they, they weren't uh, trained and physically conditioned soldiers. They were just regular farmers, and, uh, and some of them were older. And the, uh, the 100 Oneidas supplemented Herkimer's uh, uh, force. Now that evening uh, of the uh, of the fifth, Herkimer sent three men out toward the fort with messages for the fort's commander, who was Peter uh, Gainsworth. That was uh, Colonel Gainsworth. Gainsworth was supposed to signal the receipt of the messages with three cannon shots, and then to sortie out and meet the approaching column whenever the column got close enough. Because remember, the fort was under siege. They were circled by the British forces. <clears throat> and Herkimer's forces <clears throat> were going to march until they got fairly close. Then uh, then Colonel uh, Gainsworth was supposed to fire the cannons. He was going to sortie out his uh, a couple of hundred of his men from the fort to open up a lane that Herkimer's forces could use to enter the fort and help with the defense of the fort. But due to difficulties uh, in getting through the lines, the couriers didn't deliver the message until late the next morning. And this is after the battle has already started. All right. Now, St. Ledger learned from a messenger sent by Molly Brandt uh, to, her, uh, to her brother, who's a Mohawk leader, Joseph Brandt, uh, who was who was leading a portion of St. Ledger's Indian contingent that Herkimer and his relief expedition were on their way. And he learned this on August 5th. And uh, St. Ledger sent a detachment of light infantry from uh, Sir Johnson's Royal Yorkers toward the position that evening to monitor Herkimer's position. And Brandt, with his Indians, with the Mohawks, followed early the next morning with about... Uh, about 400 of the Mohawk Indians plus Butler's Rangers. Now, although many of the Indians were armed with muskets, 
quite a few that weren't, and they uh, they were only carrying tomahawks and spears. But but they ended up not using the muskets anyway. We're going to talk about that in a minute too. Now, uh, on the morning of August six. Herkimer's men got together and they held a, a war council. And since they hadn't heard yet heard anything, they hadn't heard the signal that they were supposed to hear from the fort, Herkimer wanted to wait. He said, well, let's, you know, let's wait until we get the signal. Because uh, until we get the signal, number one, we're not going to know if the, the couriers, as we sent, they sent three using different routes because Remember, the fort was under siege and was encircled by the enemy and sent three guys in hopes of just of at least getting one through the lines and getting the message uh, to Gainsworth. He wanted to wait until he heard the signal, until he heard the cannons, and he knew that the, uh, the Gainsworth's men were sallying forth from the fort in order to fight their way towards Herkimer's lines and link up. Uh... But his captains pressed him to continue on. And even worse, they started accusing Herkimer of being a Tory because his brother was serving under St. Ledger. Now, remember, this was this was an American Civil War. And the folks' families were split apart. And folks from the same, from brothers could be fighting on either side, and that was just the case in this battle. Herkimer's brother was actually uh, uh, one of St. Ledger's commanders. Now, Herkimer, of course, was, he, he was falsely accused of this, but because because of these accusations against his honor, and against his loyalty, he went ahead and took the bait, and he ordered the column to begin its march towards Sandwich, which was, which was, uh, ended up being a disaster. About six miles from the fort, the road dipped uh, down about 50 feet uh, into a marshy ravine, where there was a stream that was about uh, three feet wide that ran along uh, the bottom uh, of the ravine. And there were two Mo, uh, Seneca chiefs, uh, San Cuerta and Corn Planter, that were with John Brandt's forces. And uh, they chose this place, which was, uh, uh, they chose the dip that came down into the, uh, uh, into the bottom of the ravine to set up the ambush. And uh, King's Royal Yorkers were massed up and waiting behind a nearby rise. Now, the Indians had concealed themselves on both sides of the ravine, and the plan was for the Yorkers to stop the head of the column, after which the Indians would begin their assault on the extended column. Herkimer's column was, it was a pretty long column. Remember, there were close to 800 guys that are marching, and even if they're really tight, you're talking about uh, almost a quarter of a mile of uh, of troops. 
And what they wanted to do was they wanted to let Herkimer's force get down into the ravine and then cross through the ravine. And when it started to make it up onto the next rise out, then Herkimer's forces would be met uh, by the uh, uh, the Royal Yorkers who would stop them and begin the attack. And once he did that, the rest of the column would be attacked on both sides by branch uh, Indians. Okay. Uh, about 10 a.m., Herkimer's guys, the, the battle column, with Turkimer, who was riding a horse near the front, uh, they crossed down into the ravine, they crossed the stream, and began to ascend the other side. Now, contrary to the plan, despite the plan that they had already been set up, the Indians that were lying in wait near the rear of the column were apparently unable to control themselves any longer, and they opened fire, taking the column completely by surprise. Now, leading the first regiment was Colonel Ebenezer Cox. He was shot off his horse, and he was killed in the very first volley. Now, Herkimer turned his horse to see what was going on, and and at, right after he turned his horse and began to gallop toward where the action was, he was struck by a ball, which shattered his leg and killed the horse. And and that just kind of tells you about the, the force of that projectile, right? Because we're talking about uh, a lead ball that's almost an inch wide uh, that first hit his leg and shattered his leg and then went straight through his leg and killed his horse. Several of the officers uh, witnessed this. They grabbed, uh, they were able to get the horse off of Herkimer, and uh, they carried and drug him over to a tree not far from uh, the stream where his men uh, and the officers, were, they were urging him to to retire further from any danger, which meant to they were going to, uh, apparently trying to get him to either surrender himself or the whole unit, or at least for him to uh, allow himself to be carried further away from the battle. Uh, and Herkimer apparently was going to have none of this. He replied, I will face the enemy. And he pulled himself up against a tree, uh, pulled out his pipe and his tobacco, packed the pipe full, lit it, and started uh, trying to manage the battle there from under the tree. Now, because the trap had been sprung too early, that meant that a good portion of the column had not entered the ravine yet. They, they had not gotten into the ambush yet. And sadly, most of the guys, most of the column, there was a good portion of it, panicked and fled. Uh, they got scared and they took off running. And the the Indians that were attacking, uh, a good chunk of them, uh, took off after the men that were fleeing. And I'll tell you right now, the worst thing you can do when you're facing a bad dog or you're facing any group of attackers, the worst thing you can do is turn your back and flee. Okay? Because... That means you no longer are a threat to them. 
but they can shoot at you at will. And that's what happened. There was a long line, over a mile long. Uh, actually, I think that the records, I think the records were saying that the that the Indians pursued the guys that were playing, the guys that were panicking and, and running, pursued them for about three to five miles. And I think that the line of dead uh, went for about three and a half miles. And uh, and those guys fared even worse than the column that was that was uh, captured inside the ambush area. Now between the loss of the the, the rear of the column and those folks who were killed and wounded in the initial volleys, only about half of Herkimer's men uh, were still combat active. Uh, in the first 30 minutes of the battle. Now, remember I was telling you about the, the, the little stream that ran through the the ravine, and it was only about, uh, at the time they said it was about three feet wide. Now, I visited the battlefield at Oriskany, and I went to that exact site. Now, when I, when I visited it, the stream was only about, uh, oh, I'd say 20 inches or so wide and about 20 inches or so deep. And it wasn't a fast, it wasn't a real fast-running stream, but it was a, it was an active stream. But according to the records, when Urquhart's men uh, made it down into the ravine, they, as I told you earlier, they were really hot. They were, they'd been marching for, for many miles. And here was a stream of active, clear, clean, cool water, all right? And I'm sure that they were looking forward to drinking from it. They lined the stream. Uh, there were 30 or 40 men uh, who were on their knees, face down in the stream, when the attack began. Uh, and approximately 30 to 40 of those guys were killed right then and there with their heads in the stream. And their blood poured into the stream. And for the next uh, day and a half, that stream was a solid blood red stream that ran through the through the valley there. <clears throat> now, one of the things about this battle is uh, the Battle of Oriskany was one of the fiercest, one of the bloodiest battles of the American Revolutionary War, and it was also uh, one of the only battles that was fought. Uh, entirely between militia men and uh, and Indians. There were there there were not any uh, colonial troops, nor were there any British troops involved. This was an entirely a uh, a militia fought battle, and the the way that the battle unfolded at the time, uh, and I saw this because I, I was there at the battlefield in Ariskanina. I know it's 230, at the time, 234 years later. <clears throat> but I'm sure it couldn't have been much different than than back in 1777. The grass there in the valley was about five to six feet high. And the records indicate that it was the same way, that, that that's how the, the the valley was then that the grass was almost uh, head tall 
And what was happening was the Indians, uh, they had actually been told by their leaders, by the guys leading it, not to use their muskets. They were to rely on their spears, their knives, and their tomahawks. And what they did was they, once they'd attack, uh, they would they would work their way toward uh, uh, Herkimer's men. When one of Herkimer's men fired, then they would leap up and they would attack with the tomahawk before the guy had time to reload. Remember, it takes even a, even a great, fast reload still can, will take about uh, 25 seconds, which was plenty enough time for the Indians to jump up, engage, and attack and kill the militia member with their knives and tomahawks. Now, remember, Herko's men was made up of German farmers. They were the militia there. These were not uh, trained troops. Also, because they were using their own rifles and equipment, very few, if any of them, according to the records, had bayonets. So you have an untrained uh, person that, uh, yeah, if they can get a shot off on a close range on an attacker, they're doing good. But I'm sure that most of them were not uh, skilled in hand-to-hand fighting, hand-to-hand combat. And the Indians, that's how they... That's how they grew up. That's how they lived. So for the first couple of hours, this was a disaster for Herkimer's forces. When one of his men would fight, and it was hard to see each other because the grass was so tall uh, uh, there in the ravine, the the troops were spread out. When one of those men would fire, the, the Indians would jump up, would rush them, and then kill them. Uh, you know, with a with a tomahawk and a knife, <clears throat> and uh, the uh, one of the the Indians who were part of Herkimer's men. Uh, he was a Mohawk warrior, but he was fighting with Herkimer's men. He shot one of the enemy uh, whose fire had been devastating in its accuracy, knowing that every time. He rises up, he kills one of his men. Well, the Mohawk shot and killed him. Now, when you when you look at battles on TV, you know they are uh, they're choreographed and they're designed so that it fits within the the framework of the TV fight, right? So the you watch the battle and the battle occurs very fairly quickly on the screen, and uh, and then once it's over, you have a pile of guys uh, all laying there dead, and and it's eerily quiet, and you have, like, the lone survivor that is walking the battlefield, and it's, and everyone's dead, and it's just, uh, it's just a quiet, somber moment. Well, the reality of battle is much different than that. <clears throat> In the real world battles, uh, people don't all die. Uh, matter of fact, you usually only have one dead person for every three to five wounded. And those wounded people are not quiet about it. They're usually screaming and crying and and thrashing about. And 
and the battle doesn't uh, it doesn't take ten to fifteen minutes for it to be over. It goes on and on. While men are still living, they're still fighting. Nobody had surrendered. Herkimer was still uh, directing the actions of the battle from under his tree. Now, there was a thunderstorm uh, about uh, about an hour and a half or so into the fighting. And uh, this caused a break in the fighting. Now, Herkimer's men... Uh, had been rallying. They'd been fighting their way out of the ravine uh, to the crest of the ravine, just to the west of where the attack initially started. Uh, now, John Johnson, who was uh, with the with the British camp, not the regular, but with the British camp, he was worried about the about Herkimer's militia, and he headed back to the British camp. And he was requesting some reinforcements from St. Ledger. Now, right about this time, uh, a thunderstorm had broke out. And another 70 men were heading back with Johnson, back with him toward the battle. But the thunderstorm caused about a one-hour break in the fighting. Now, during the the break, Herkimer was able to regroup his militia onto the higher ground. Then he instructed his men to fight in pair. Now, remember what I told you earlier. The Indians were waiting for a shot. And once the shot rang out, then they were they would attack the person who had just fired the shot. They would attack him and kill him. Okay? In order to, to circumvent this, Herkimer instructed his men to fight in pairs. Now, while one man fired, and reloaded, the other one sat there with a ready-to-fire musket and waited. And he only fired if there was an attack, all right? So one guy fires. The other guy is sitting there with his musket cocked and ready. Now one guy fires, and he begins reloading. Now if the uh, if one of Bryant's Indians chose this time to attack, then he got a surprise because the other guy was sitting there ready and waiting. And they started killing the Indians at a pretty at a pretty great rate this way because the Indians, uh, they hadn't got the message that the, the, the people they were attacking had changed tactics. They were all still using the same tactic, which was creep up close, the guy fires, jump up, and chop him up with the hatchet. And that's what they were all still doing. Now, and but here's the thing. It was no longer working. <clears throat> now, Butler, who was a leader of the, the Rangers, part of the uh, British crew, during the thunderstorm, he questioned some of the captives, and then he learned the, about, the, about the three cannon signal. When Johnson and his reinforcements arrived, he convinced them to turn their coats inside out to disguise themselves as a relief party coming from the fort. And when the fighting restarted after the rain, Johnson and the rest of the uh, Royal Yorkers joined in the battle. But uh, one of the Patriot militiamen, which is uh, Captain Jacob Gardner, recognized the face of a loyalist neighbor. Now, also, uh, uh, 
there was a female Indian who was fighting uh, along with the rest of the Oneidas, or the she was the I believe she was the daughter of the chief. <clears throat> she had come she had come uh, with Herkimer's men with her tribe, and this the some of the information lists that Jacob recognized uh, his neighbor's face, but at the same time the uh, the female Indian she also recognized one of the uh, the loyalist forces and immediately attacked on her own by herself. <clears throat> so the guys that were they were making a straight in attack, uh, trying to camouflage themselves as a relief force, were discovered right at the onset, and uh, and uh, the fierce battle engaged there, uh, including close combat, uh, hand-to-hand, and it went on for quite a while. Like I said, these, these battles, especially when it's hand-to-hand, they don't, it's not over quickly. Uh, in the same way that you see guys fist fighting, uh, in the movies, fist fights, they, they last uh, five to ten seconds. When one guy gets knocked out, <clears throat> and the other guy uh, stands there, he walks off or whatever. In real life, Fist fights can go on forever, uh, you know, until somebody breaks them up. They can go on forever. No different when you have, uh, even if you have weapons, it can still go on for a long time just with two guys. These are a couple of hundred guys fighting hand-to-hand with knives and hatchets and swords. And uh, and the records indicated that it continued for for a good long time. Finally, finally, Herkimer's messengers, did he sent out the night before? They got to the fort around 11 a.m. Now, this is two hours after the attack has already started there uh, uh, in the valley. Uh, James Fort began organizing the sortie that, uh, that Herkimer was, had requested, but uh, Lieutenant Colonel Willett led... 250 men from the fort, but instead of heading down to where Herkimer's forces were, they went directly into the the enemy encampment, which was uh, just to the south of the fort. And the enemy encampments, this is where all of the uh, the Indians were in camp. You know, this was, uh, well, I guess, about three or 400 uh, Indians that were fighting on the Loyalist side. Those 250 men sallied out of the fort, went straight into the the enemy uh, encampment, uh, drove away and killed a few uh, uh, loyalists and then Indians that were left in the camp and uh, took uh, prisoners of the rest, and then started destroying and raiding the camp. <laughs> they uh, they took all of the blankets, all of the all of the clothes, everything and anything they took uh, from the camp. And one of the Indians who had been left there uh, to guard the camp, and when it started, he took off running. He ran all the way down to where the battle with Herkimer was going on and started yelling to the rest of the Indians there that the camp was being raided. Now, 
that caused the Indians that were fighting uh, to start yelling all up and down their battle line, Una, Una, which was the Seneca signal to to stop the battle and to retreat. And they started uh, dashing to the camp to protect their women and possessions. Uh, this forced the smaller number of the of the white uh, soldiers, the Germans and uh, British loyalists, to also withdraw because now they were going to be outnumbered by Herkimer's uh, remaining active combat uh, forces because all the Indians had left. Now, <laughs> you got to remember that, uh, or I'll have to tell you, but I've told you before when we talked about the battle, that one of the, the whole reasons that these Indians had decided to fight along with the loyalists is because they had been told that they were going to be able to uh, collect a great deal of uh, of booty, uh, you know, of, of uh, they were going to be able to take a great deal of gear and stuff in the fight, which was which back then was one of the main reasons that, that Indians fought, and that was to get the the possessions of their enemies. Uh, they were going to take scalps because there was still a British bounty on uh, on colonial scalps. That means that the British were paying the Indians for bringing them the scalp of an American colonist, and they were going to be able to take all of the muskets, all of the clothes, all of the wagons, the horses, everything. That that was their pay for the fighting. Well, number one, their tactics were no longer working. They were being killed in pretty good numbers because now instead of them killing a one of Herkers in every time he fired, they were being killed. Every time they attacked, they were being killed because they weren't attacking in... You know, the Indians weren't attacking in columns. They were attacking in ones and twos. Uh, and now they're being killed in ones and twos. Uh, but not just uh, a, one or two at a time. They were being killed all up and down the line now using the their their old tactics against Herkimer's new tactics. Okay, so not only were a lot of their, uh, of their forces being killed, but now they were losing their own, all of their own possessions. They were losing all of their blankets and uh, and their furs and uh, all of their all of their personal possessions were being uh, were being raided and destroyed. So they took off. When they took off, that left the uh, the smaller number of uh, of the white militia, the loyalists. Now they were outnumbered, so they pulled back away too. Finally, the the remainder of Herkimer's force <clears throat> uh, began to withdraw, and they retreated back to Fort Dayton. Now, Herkimer was very seriously wounded, and many of the captains of uh, of Herkimer's force had been killed. Remember, we talked about. Uh, a great number of them being killed right at the onset of the battle. I'm sure that they were they were targeted no differently than the way that uh, the colonial militia 
was instructed to, to target the British regular officers. Well, Herdman's force retreated back to Fort Dayton, and uh, Herkimer was carried uh, uh, on a uh, field expedient stretcher uh, from the battlefield. Once they got him uh, into a home, the surgeons worked on him, and his leg was amputated. But the operation went poorly, and he died on August 16th. Now, first of all, the the medicine back at that time was uh, was very rudimentary, and uh, some of the reports of the I guess it was about nine days or so that uh, that Herkimer didn't want his leg to be cut off, but finally he did have it cut off. However, since they had waited so long, the the wound had become infected above the point where they had it cut off. So they cut it off the first time, but then they had to cut off another section. And then they had to cut off another section because they had waited too long. The infection was spreading up above the amputation point. Not only that, but in order to get the infection out, they were bleeding him because at the time that was uh, that was an accepted remedy for uh, for taking care of uh, infections, and that is. To cut into one of the veins, like in the arm or something, and to let out that bad blood. So, so eventually, Herkimer died. And while the Indians went back to the battlefield and they collected the, the majority of their dead the following day, many dead and wounded patriots were left on the field. The dead and wounded were left. Uh, some of the records indicate that even uh, even three or four days later that people could hear moans and cries from the battlefield from some of the wounded. <clears throat> Arnold's relief column came about uh, about three weeks later, and and he marched through the scene, and they said even then, even three weeks later, the the stench and the the horror of all of the dead bodies everywhere was uh, was quite a uh, quite a memorable uh, scene. It was a very grisly and memorable scene that uh, Arnold recorded. <clears throat> when Schuler heard uh, about the retreat from Oriskany, and let me also say this, that that even though Herkimer's forces uh, were badly damaged, were very badly damaged, his attack did relieve uh, the pressure on Fort Stanley, because the Indians, once their camp had been raided 
and and so many of their men had been killed, the Indians were very angry with the with the British over this. Because as I said earlier, they had been led to believe that they were gonna they were going to get some easy loot out of this. It was gonna be an easy battle, they were gonna get some easy loot. And uh and that's not what happened. They lost a lot of men and they lost all of their personal possessions. And uh they were very angry and they left. Now this caused uh uh this caused the forces who were besieging the fort uh, to be reduced great by a great number. And whenever Arnold uh, started approaching the scene, uh, this was later on in, on August 21st, uh, whenever he finally got there, <clears throat> uh, the... The British forces there at the fort uh, had already been reduced, reduced in great number. Not only that, but Arnold uh, had a uh, like a there was like a, a a crazy guy there, and I believe he was uh, if I if I'm not correct, I believe he was part Indian. Anyway, he had the guy uh, go into the into the uh, the British camp and persuaded the British uh, and the Indians that were left that Arnold's force was uh, three to four times larger than it actually was. And he was so convincing in his mad uh, raves and rants that the, the forces besieging Stanwyck uh, pulled up and left. They had even given him a uh, a coat uh, that had uh, either either it had bullet holes in it or they put bullet holes in it, and he was showing that to uh, the British forces and to the Indians when he came to their camp. He was saying, "Look, I, I've already been look at the jacket; it's got four holes in it already. Uh, I'm barely made it out alive. Uh, uh, Arnold is coming, and he's got uh, three thousand men with him. <clears throat> so." The siege on Stanwix was lifted, and this destroyed the second prong of the attack that uh, was supposed to be carried on further down the Mohawk and end up with uh, with uh, uh, Ledger meeting Burgoyne at Albany. <clears throat> this destroyed that uh, that prong of the attack. Now, uh, Brant, who was leading the Indians that uh, were attacking Perkimer's forces, he was the principal Seneca chief. Now, he had proposed the next day after the battle to continue fighting by pursuing the colonials uh, downriver towards German Flats, but St. Ledger turned this proposal down. Uh, I think that Ledger... Uh, fearing the size of Arnold's force and not having the success already in the battle that he had hoped for, uh, decided to discontinue the attack. Now, remember what I told you earlier about uh, 
the tribes, some of the tribes were with Herkimer's forces, and some were with St. Ledger's forces. Now, this battle marked the beginning of the Civil War in the Iroquois Confederacy. You know, I told you that uh, the Indians in this area, uh, the Six Nations, they'd been at peace for a long, long time. They, they, they were, it actually worked out uh, uh, the uh, peace all across their nation through a confederacy of tribes and through, uh, through diplomatic procedures. This ripped that apart. And uh, the Iroquois, who were in St. Ledger's camp, they met in council, and their decision was to send the Oneidas, one of the other tribes in the Confederacy, a bloody hatchet. And the bloody hatchet is a is no different than a uh, a piece of paper announcing the onset of war. Uh, Branch forces, his uh, Indians, the Mohawks, they started raiding and they burned the Oneida settlement of Oriska uh, a little bit later in the siege. This prompted the Oneidas to plunder the Mohawk castles of Ticonderoga and Canajahair. Uh, uh, the Fort Hunter Mohawks were later subjected to the same treaty, prompting most of the remaining Mohawks to flee to Quebec. So this completely uh, destroyed the peace uh, in the Iroquois Confederacy and caused a tremendous civil war within the Iroquois Confederacy, within the Six Nations. Now, according to to records, and I don't know if this was uh, how accurate the records are, it was claimed that Branch Mohawk, that his forces were torturing and eating the prisoners. However, modern historians <laughs> dispute this. Maybe they just don't want to believe that it happened, but uh, they're disputing this, and they're saying that it, uh, it's likely that some of the prisons were that were taken were ritually killed, which to Europeans is extremely similar to torture, but it was pretty much of an accepted thing within the tribes, uh, you know, a ritual killing. But as, uh, there doesn't seem to be any records of uh, of cannibalism. However, John Butler reported that uh, that four prisoners held by the Indians uh, and were conformable to the Indian customs were afterwards killed. Uh, I'm sure that you, if you guys have seen things like. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, the last of the Mohicans. Uh, that in that movie, uh, they were showing some of the the traditional customs, and in that, that's where they uh, they would tie a brave uh, or or a woman or a man or whoever they would tie them to a stake, and uh, they would stab them with spears, and then set them on fire. And this was an accepted form of ritualized killing among the tribes. Uh, it didn't seem very 
very civilized to the Europeans, but the Indians considered it, uh, you know, an acceptable form of killing. And uh, and this was the beginning of the end of the Six Nations. <clears throat> now, the battle, uh, the Battle of Oriskany, based on the percentage of the casualties that were suffered uh, during this this uh, engagement, caused it to be one of the bloodiest battles of the war. Uh, about half of Herkimer's force was killed or wounded. Remember, he had a force of a little over 800. So uh, around 400 or so men of his force uh, were killed or wounded. Uh, about 15% of the British force was killed or wounded. Now, St. Winter claimed the battle as a victory because the uh, American relief column, Herkimer's forces, <clears throat> had uh, clearly been stopped. Uh, they never made it to the fort. They never relieved the fort. However, the Americans were left in control of the battlefield by the withdrawal of the Indians, right? So the the, first, the, the force that's in, in uh, control of the battlefield at the end of the battle are considered to be the victors. Now, the British victory... <clears throat> Uh, however they felt about it, uh, was a little bit uh, was a little bit cold because of the discontent of the Indians after the battle. When they had, when they joined the expedition, like I said, they had uh, they had expectations that the British that the British forces, the actual militia, would do most of the fighting. Uh, However, in in this actual battle, they were the dominant fighters, and and they suffered a great deal to the loss of their personal belongings taken during the sortie from the fort, and the large number of their warriors that had been killed. And this blow to their morale contributed to the eventual failure of St. Ledger's expedition. And St. Ledger's failure of St. Ledger's expedition uh, aided in the failure of Burgoyne's uh, expedition, his attack uh, into New York, and his attempt to split the colonies. It aided in the failure of uh, Burgoyne's attack. So the whole attack ended up being a failure. And as I said, and this was a, that was a very important battle. If they would have been able to split the colonies, split New York from the colonies, and isolated it, then uh, that could have been the beginning of the end for the colonies. But but they didn't, and that was due in large part because of the Battle of Oriskany, because of Herkimer's relief forces. Uh, that caused the the Indians to lose a, a number of their warriors and then to lose their possessions and then to become discontented and finally leave, this stopped St. Ledger. St. Ledger's stopping aided in Burgoyne's failure. 
So this was a very important battle of the American Revolutionary War. And uh and uh, and one of the bloodiest and uh and a very sad battle. Uh because if you think about it, you know, you've got a you've got a large settlement. So you've got uh, uh oh I don't know, but you've got a thousand homes uh, along the Mohawk Valley. Uh, you know, a thousand cabins with a thousand families. And of those, you've got over 400 now of those cabins uh, that are either empty of the of the main provider for that family. Either that provider is dead or he's seriously wounded. And a great number of the wounded died afterwards. a very sad outcome, a very sad battle. However, it was a very important battle because of the uh, because of the the effect that it had. Uh, okay, I've got to uh, I've got to talk and write again. So I'm going to pause for just a second. Because I've got to write this number. Two, six. Okay, I did know a number to uh, to Sam so that he can call Paul. Because I told Paul that uh, <coughs> that we would call him uh, near the end of the show. So Paul, uh, Sam. If you'll call that number uh, in about uh, uh, about ten or fifteen minutes, and then uh, when you get when you get Paul on the line, let me know. Paul's going to talk to us about the uh, Freedom Palooza. <clears throat> All right, I want to talk to you now about the, the Battle of Waxhaws, and uh, this took place later on in the war. This was May 29, seventeen eighty, and this is uh, near the town of Lancaster in South Carolina. Uh, this battle was between a continental force that was laid, led by uh, Abraham Buford, which was uh, uh, which was in battle against a mainly loyalist force led by Bannister Tarleton. Uh, the American commander refused an initial demand for surrender. But when his men were attacked by Tarleton's cavalry, many of them threw down their arms to surrender. They they were, I believe they felt they were outnumbered. And once again, this was a, uh, uh, the the forces, I don't believe, uh, I don't believe that Buford's force was a, uh, a well-trained force. But uh, many of his men, uh, when they were attacked by the cavalry, they threw down their arms to surrender. Now, uh, accounts uh, during the battle differ on some of the significant details, but Buford apparently then attempted to surrender. Once the battle had started, attempted to surrender, but it, it but his surrender was rejected. 
and Tarleton's men continued killing the Patriot soldiers, including men who had thrown down their arms and were kneeling uh, with their hands in the air. Uh, let me give you a little bit about uh, about how this began. Uh, Buford had a force of about 380 Virginian Continentals. His force was a 3rd Virginia detachment. This was composed of the 7th Virginia Regiment, two companies of the 2nd Virginia Regiment, and an artillery detachment with two six-pound cannons. The cannons were fairly small, but, you know, back then a cannon was a cannon. Now, most of his men were raw recruits, and they didn't have, they had little or no experience. Although Buford did have experienced officers under his command, uh, the the majority of Buford's men were were uh, were brand new recruits with no experience. Now, uh, due to delays in getting the command together and then outfitting them, getting their gear and everything, uh, Buford had been a- unable to reach Charleston to participate in the, the defense of the Battle of Charleston. But Charleston's commander, uh, Benjamin Lincoln had ordered him to take a defense position near uh, Leonard's Ferry on the Santee River, right outside the city. But Lincoln surrendered right about the time Buford reached the position. So Buford eventually was joined by about 40 of the Virginia Light Dragoons who had escaped escaped the... Excuse me. Had escaped the siege... uh, during the battles outside the city, and he was also uh, uh, argumented by uh, Caswell's North Carolina militia. Now, after the news of the surrender, Buford was ordered by uh, General Huger to return to Hillsborough, North Carolina, and he turned his column around and headed north. But at Camden, Buford and Caswell parted ways, with Buford heading on north toward the Waxhaws region. And Buford was accompanied for a time by the South Carolina governor, uh, John Rutledge, who had been recruiting the militia uh, in the back country there. But when Buford stopped to rest his troops at the Waxhaws Creek, uh, Rutledge rode on ahead toward Charlotte. Now, General Clinton learned of Huger's force and Rutledge's presence on May 15th, and he ordered Cornwallis. Uh, to bring the South Carolina and Georgia back countries under George, under their British control. But his army was moving too slowly to keep up with Buford. So Cornwallis, on the 27th, sent Lieutenant Colonel Bannister Talton in pursuit with a force of about 270 men. These were mainly uh, light infantry and mounted cavalry that could move fast. Uh, Tarleton at the time was commanding the British Legion, which was a primarily a loyalist regiment. Now, the force he took in pursuit of Buford consisted of 170 legion and the British Army Dragoons, 100 mounted British Legion infantry, and a three-pound cannon. And Charleston reached Camden late on May 28th. Now, he set off in pursuit of Buford around midnight the next morning. Uh, And by that afternoon, uh, his advanced force of 60 Dragoons uh, from the 17th Light Dragoons and the British Legion Cavalry, uh, 
moved into the area, as well as an additional flanking force of 30 British Legion Dragoons and uh, Mounted Infantry. Now, they'd reached Buford's resting place, but Buford had been warned of Charles' pursuit, and he'd begun moving north. He was about, uh, he'd moved already about two miles up the road by the time uh, Charlton had got to the place where he had, he had hoped that he would meet Buford. Uh, Tarleton sent an officer forward. He sent uh, Captain Kinlock forward to the rebel call. He was carrying out a white flag, and he demanded Buford surrender. Now, when Kinlock got there, Buford halted the march, and he formed a battle line while the parley was taking place. Tarleton exaggerated the size of his force in his message. He claimed he had 700 men, and he told Buford that uh, in order to save himself and his men, to save their lives, uh, that he would just, he would take Buford's surrender, and he would not set his 400 men uh, into attack against Buford. Now, the note also stated firmly to, to Buford that uh, resistance being vain, to prevent the effusion of human blood, I make offers which can never be repeated, indicating that Tarleton would ask only once for Buford to surrender. Buford refused to surrender with the message, I reject your proposals and shall defend myself to the last extremity. Buford then reformed his troops into a column and continued the northward march with his baggage train near the front of the column. Tarleton, arguably in violation of accepted rules of war, had continued his march while the parley took place, right? Now, according to the uh, to the rules of war at the time, uh, whenever there is a parley, both sides are supposed to stop any action. They're supposed to stop movement, fighting, etc. Tarleton didn't. While the parley was going on and Buford's force was stopped, Tarleton continued to rush his men forward. Uh, About 3 o'clock, the leading edge of Tarleton's force caught up with Buford's rear guard. Now, according to an eyewitness uh, from one of the Patriots, uh, a field surgeon uh, named Robert Brownfield, the five dragoons of the rear guard were captured, and their leader, Captain Pearson, was inhumanely mangled by saber cuts. Some inflicted after he had fallen. Uh, in other words, they they were captured and then pretty much just hacked to death. Uh, Buford stopped the column. As soon as he saw the attack, as soon as he heard the attack was going on, he stopped the column, except for the, uh, the artillery in the baggage. He, he ordered them to continue on with the march, and he formed a single battle line uh, near some of the open woods just uh, north of the place where Tarleton attacked. Now, Tarleton, uh, along along with his cavalry and some of the horses, uh, were so tired from the pursuit that he was unable to bring his field artillery into range. He established a command post on a nearby hill, and he organized his forces for the attack. Now, according to, uh, to his account, Tarleton's account of the battle, uh, 
He laid 60 British Legion Dragoons and a light number of infantry on the right. The Dragoons of the 17th, along with some additional British Legion Dragoons in the center, and uh, Tarleton personally took command of the left, commanding 30 Trojan horse and some infantry. Uh, now, what happened next is the subject of a, of a great deal of debate due to the controversial nature uh, of the events and the significant inconsistency in the primary accounts. Tarleton's line charge, and Buford waited until the enemy was within 10 yards before giving the order to fire, which was a tactical mistake on Buford's part, for it enabled Tarleton's formations to hold while only giving Buford's men time to fire a single volley before the British riders were attacking the line, right? Because we we know historically of the, the accuracy of the... Uh, uh, of the the muskets and the the shoots the the folks that were shooting, he only had time to fire one volley at the forces, and by that time they were within Buford's lines uh, attacking. You know, if he would have if he would have if he would have given the command to fire at uh, at seventy yards. Then there's a good chance his men would have had time to uh, to get a second volley in uh, before the attackers came. Uh, as Tarleton's cavalry tore Buford's forces apart, these were, as I said, these were pretty inexperienced men. Uh, many of the Americans began. Uh, Many of the uh, uh, Americans began laying their, down their arms and offering to surrender. And according to the Patriots' accounts, Buford, realizing that the cause was lost, dispatched a white flag for Carlton in an attempt to surrender. However, Carlton had been unhorsed. Now, exactly when he got unhorsed uh, is... There is not uh, not exactly placed in the accounts. The people are not sure exactly when that happened. But according to the account, Charlton had been unhorsed, uh, and he he, may, he actually may not have ever received the uh, the surrender from Buford. <clears throat> uh, none of the British accounts of the battle mention uh, seeing the surrender flag, and they, but the account do agree that the flag was refused. Uh, Buford and some of his cavalry then escaped the battlefield. Now, by conventional historical accounts, Tarleton's unhorsing gave some of the loyalty, loyalist cavalry the impression that the rebels had shot at their commander while asking for mercy. Uh, he wasn't. Tom didn't get. He didn't get shot off his horse. He he fell at some point, and when he fell, that was right in the middle of the of the surrender. And now, Tom's forces thought that that they were surrendering, but in the middle of their surrendering, they had shot their commander and. Uh, 
and they began what became a slaughter. Uh, according to the the same the surgeon that I was telling you about earlier, uh, Brownfield, who written account of the the battle uh, many years later, the loyalists attacked, carrying out indiscriminate carnage never surpassed by the most ruthless atrocities of the most barbarous savages. Charles' men began stabbing and hacking the wounded where they lay, regardless of the surrender, uh, for almost 20 minutes after the battle had ended. Uh, According to Charles' report of the battle, the American rebel casualties were 113 men killed, 147 wounded, and released on parole, and the two six-pounder cannons and the 26 wagons captured. The British losses were five killed, 12 wounded, 11 horses killed, and 19 horses wounded. Uh, Charles' men were also able to recover the American baggage train. Historians in the 19th century blamed Charlton for the massacre, even though most contemporary references to it did not really describe it as such. Charlton, in his report to Cornwallis, described the battle as a slaughter, but claimed that his men, thinking that their commander was dead, engaged in a vindictive asperity not easily restrained after he was unhorsed. William Moultrie noted that the lopsided casualty count was not unusual for similar battles in which one side gained a decided advantage early in the battle. Historian Jim Pooch argues that the battle was as much a massacre as similar events led by Patriot commanders, and and you could certainly uh, you could certainly agree that uh, things like uh, the Battle of King's Mountain uh, was uh, was a close uh, as close of a slaughter as this. However, uh, David Wilson. Uh, whole chart were responsible for the slaughter, noting that it represented a uh, a loss of discipline, something Charlton would have been responsible for maintain, maintaining. And uh, uh, and then this led to what began to be called Charlton's Quarter. And for a good while after this. The neither side was given quarters. Uh, the American forces were were exacting revenge by killing loyalists who surrendered. Uh, loyalists were killing, in return, were killing uh, American patriots who were surrendering. So Tarleton's quarter, even though even though it probably was not. Uh, was not entirely due to Tarleton's fault. Uh, Tarleton's quarter became the the phrase for no quarter, for killing uh, even uh, folks who had surrendered. Now, if you remember the movie The Patriot, that uh, the evil commander, uh, cavalry commander in The Patriot, is the uh, is based on Tarleton. Okay, uh, I told you guys uh, earlier about uh, Freedom Palooza and uh, and that uh, the band Poker Face, that the the music that we play in our intro, Control, that is a song from Poker Face. And we really appreciate the guys from Poker Face uh, 
uh, Lonely Descent Music. And I told you that they're going to be playing an event called Freedom Palooza. And I've got Paul from Poker Face uh, on the line now. And he's going to tell us uh, a little bit about it. Paul, welcome to the show. Uh, Scott, thanks for having me up, brother, as always. Uh, it's great to hear from you. And, um, hey, thanks for using our music. Uh, we love we love what the Apple Seed's about. I mean, Poker Face is, a, is an education tool as well. And uh, it's a mean to get the Americans back to their culture and roots of, of, of our forefathers, uh, what started this nation. And once we get back to it, uh, we're not going to be anymore. So um, you guys are doing a very necessary job, and uh, we thank you out here. Well, yeah, and we thank you because uh, you guys have been at this for a long time, and you've done a great job. And folks all over the Patriot Movement are well aware of Poker Face, and uh, and you guys have been playing some great music uh, for a good long while. And I know that there's a there's a lot of stuff going on right now with you guys. I think you're getting ready to release uh, another album, right? Uh, it's called Tyranny Be Tell America. Um, it's talking about the uh, growing police state. And um, six of the songs deal with the bankers that are behind most of the, the problems of the world. And um, we also right. offer solutions. So uh, once you know, if you get into our music and, and you get any of our discs, we actually uh, include a nice little poster pullout. It's like 15 inches by 15 inches. And it's like the records of old. I grew up uh, when, when records was, were still around before the CDs came in. The CDs is like, as I get older, man, that those small prints just isn't cutting it from my eyes, and it's nice to have something that you hold in your hand. Um, but that that being said, Poker Face is uh, one of uh, probably 20 acts I'll be playing over the three-day weekend starting July 4th through the 6th. Uh, it is a Patriot Fest. It's a camp-out fest. It's where uh, Patriots become friends. Uh, the best part of the day for me is after the, the 10 bands and 10 speakers go through through each day, uh, we get to chill out by a big bonfire and, you know, throw down with uh, acoustic guitars and John Bays and people having cool political, you know, patriotic uh, forefather kind of discussions and educating one another, things that we all know. None of us have all the answers or have all the knowledge, and all of us have some of the pieces, and it's good to, to be able to converse. But uh, we have speakers uh, like Jim Traficant, uh, who was uh, responsible for the 1998 Taxpayers' Bill of Rights that freed the American taxpayer from bondage of the IRS and their auditing, I think they freed up like 90% of the, the audits that they were doing because they had to prove that the person was guilty where before all they had to do was accuse you. And um, then you had to well, spend all your money. That's going to be very relevant right now, isn't it? Because of, uh, because of the... Oh, with the IRS situation. going and attacking the conservative group. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. And uh, so, so he's going to be speaking about that and he's going to uh, London or to England to... Uh, to check up on the Bilderberg meeting that's happening, I think, June 6th through the 8th, coming up very shortly, and uh, he's going to come back and give a report from that. Uh, Cynthia McKinney, who's been redistricted twice out of her uh, Congress office, who is very strong, pro-American, um, you know, has stood up to the tyrannists here in our country. Uh, Larry Pratt from Gun Owners of America, um, he's going to speak both Friday and Saturday. Uh, for us, Gun Owners of America is the stronger the gun groups out there. Um, we haven't been happy with the NRA for several several of the bills that they actually agreed upon with the uh, the, the gun communists, and that's why he's speaking and they're not. Um, we have people like Sean House from Hemsels that teaches you the farmers of old grew hemp, and it was a mainstay of of the republic. In fact, you have you can pay your taxes with hemp, and he produces products that are hemp, uh, you know, based, and you know he teaches you the the wonders of the plant how. We can make 50,000 products that we need every day that our, our, our communities could grow strong, farmers could be the economic vehicle that they once used to be. 
and so on down the list. So it's great music. You get to hear music to entertain yourself. You have great speakers. Uh, the place where it's at is in Upper Bucks County along the Delaware River, right up the river from where Washington crossed the Delaware, turned off the Hessians in Trenton and turned the tide of the war. That was after he prayed at Valley Ford and, and had the, the vision by the Holy Spirit that showed him the three great wars. And that, that's another thing for another day. But it's very picturesque. It's on the Delaware River, 22 acres. Uh, the guy that owns the property has the restaurant. Uh, his food is great. The prices are low. Uh, its cost is thirty dollars for the for the three days, so it's ten dollars a day or fifteen dollars each day. It includes parking, includes camping if you choose to stay. Um, we are allowing adults to have beer there, uh, only in cans because it is a family event and we don't want uh, bottles to be broken. But we also right, don't want right. people to get out of you know lose their minds. So you know they come have a fun time. You know after you've seen the family and the friends on the fourth, we're going to start gathering probably seven o'clock. Uh, the first band will go on that evening and then all day Friday, all day Saturday. Uh, celebration of our Americanism. That's why we do it on the 4th. And um, a gathering of great Americans that have, have the stones to tell the truth as close to it as they know it. Um, sacred goats be damned and uh, special interests as well. Wow. That sounds really great. And, you know, I'm just thinking, I'm not sure when when I'm going to be heading to uh, New York, but maybe uh, maybe that will match up with my trip. And if it does, I'll, I'll certainly uh, stop in there. But otherwise, uh, awesome. I'd... I'd I announced to folks earlier in the show that uh, that I would like for the folks to get in touch with me because you are uh, you did uh, you and I talked earlier and you said that that you would like for somebody from Appleseed uh, to be yeah. there to speak to the folks. So if you guys want to do that, be, be sure and get in touch with me and get in touch with uh, Paul. And uh, let's see, there's uh, two websites you can go to. One is uh, freedompalooza.blogspot.com. If you just Google freedompalooza, it'll take you straight to it. Yeah, freedompalooza.com gets you there. It forwards it to that site. So freedompalooza.com, just simplify for me. And then also, uh, you guys, go to pokerface.com. Go to pokerface.com and listen to the music that that they have there because they've got a lot of music right there on the page. You can listen to the music. uh, uh, You can watch some of the videos that they have. And you can see what uh, what really fantastic music uh, that these guys are putting out. All right, Paul. Thank you. Listen, God bless you and uh, and keep you and uh, thank you. And I hope to see you on July fourth. Uh, and man. I hope everything goes well for the for there for you guys. Thank you, and uh, you know everybody, uh, safe celebrations on the fourth. Don't 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 give the gun gun as an excuse to try to take our guns even more. God bless. All right, listen, you take care, and uh, you guys will see you next Thursday at uh, 7 p.m. Central. We'll be talking about the...
Yeah. 